Hello and welcome to another episode of Adventures in .NET. I'm Sean Claybo, your host, and with me today are your co-hosts, Wailu. How you doing? Hey, how you doing? Good, good. Good, good. And Caleb Wells, all the way from hey, New Orleans. Right, right. <laughs> and and why is coming from Adelaide, right? He's he is he is remote, remote. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Luckily this time I didn't um I think last time what happened was I I logged in half an hour later because there's actually a time difference here. So <laughs> this time I remembered yeah, that. You have, Adelaide. you have half hour time zones, which is really weird. Is it? Yeah. You got Australia, you got so many what ten different ten or eleven time zones. So well, it's offset it's weird for minutes. us. Yeah. Right? yeah, but but we have a lot. You guys of stuff have like four or five. Though, right? Yes, we got yeah Pacific Mountain, Central, Eastern. We have four, but they're all an hour apart. Yeah. I mean, the weird one is about Australia is that the some of them are vertically different. So mm. you know, usually yeah. it's kind of like horizontally, like north and uh, east and west. So yeah, east and west kind of time zones, but some of them are. North and South ones as well. Yeah. So. The weird thing about the U.S. is we have some states that don't change their times, you know, in spring and fall, and and most of them do. So oh, like okay. Hawaii and Arizona and I think parts of Indiana, they just stay one time all year. Everybody yeah, else is switches. <laughs> I'm guessing the state, the, the decision is left on the state again, I guess. It's not a federal yep. mandate for yep. time zone. Yep. Mm. All right, guys, should we bring on our guest? I, I do believe yeah, so. Yeah. All right. It's a, some guy we met, you know, walking down the street one day. <laughs> and we said, hey, hey, um, do you know anything about Blazor? We need a guest. He said, oh, yeah, I do. So great. Please welcome Daniel Wait, Rod. Way back in 2019. <laughs> Everyone. Hey, Dan. How you doing? I'm random Blazor guy off the street. Yes. <laughs> I'm doing great. Well, well you, you are the random Blazor guy. <laughs> <laughs> You're not just a random blazer guy. <laughs> Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. Yeah, it's been a while. In episode three, which is... Uh, back in 2019 when we recorded this. Wow, 2019, that's so long ago. Like then there's this, right. I what happened after 2019, I don't even remember. This is like black chasm in my memory and then <laughs> 2021. Was was there a year in there somewhere? Did, didn't we just skip 2020? <laughs> I saw you at, at, at Ignite that year and then now it's now. That's just all that happened. Yeah. <laughs> that's we went just from Ignite November 2019 to now. Yeah. Yep. So, so episode three. We're, yep. Yeah, we're we we got you back here because we want to talk more Blazor, right? Because a lot has changed in the roughly you know year or so since we talked. I mean, a whole whole lot. And so you know, we wanted to pick your brain about some of those changes and and the direction of Blazor and you know how you feel about the state of the framework, so to speak, and then um. I think we can also talk about an application that I'm working on that is all Blazor and is actually in production. So, um, oh man, we can yeah. hear about. You can tell me all the problems you're you're, you're hitting, all the things we <laughs> need to address. Hopefully, it's been good. Hopefully, about it good has experience. been. It, it really it has been. That's yep. good. Well, yeah, the a lot has happened. Um, let's see. So, 2019 that does seem like forever ago. I mean, 2019 was when we were shipping, I think that's when we shipped .NET Core 3.0 and .NET Core 3.1 shortly thereafter. And that was when Blazor shipped for the first time. It, it shipped in 3.0. That was Blazor server. So that's the model where you're running your Blazor UI components on the server and you have a real-time connection with the browser that we use to manage all the UI interactions. You, you click on things and we send those UI events to the server, the components run, and then they update the, the browser in, in, in near real time. Uh, and that shipped in 3.0. And then again with .NET Core 3.1 LTS, which was a, a long-term support release. 
So Blazor has an LTS support policy if you're looking for, for that, if that's, that's important for your applications. Um, at that time, we were also working on Blazor WebAssembly, which is a, a different flavor of Blazor where you take the same components, but instead of running them on the server, you can run them right in the browser using a WebAssembly-based .NET runtime. So no plugins, no, no code transpilation, just normal .NET DLLs running client-side in a browser using only open web standards, um, basically based primarily on, on WebAssembly. And so we were working on that after 3.1 shipped in that, in that great black chasm of 2020. We, we worked on that and actually <laughs> it shipped for the, for the first time in the, the middle of 20. I think it was in May. We, and we called it Blazor WebAssembly 3.2, like a really weird version, honestly, to be, to be fair, because it was based on .NET Core 3.1, but it wasn't. It, it was the first version of Blazor WebAssembly, and so we weren't quite ready to, to give it a, an LTS, a long-term support policy uh, at that point. Usually, we like to let our, our, our products and frameworks bake a little bit before we bless them with a, an LTS support policy. So we gave it a slightly different version number to try and make that clearer. Uh, and then end of last year, we just shipped .NET 5, which if you don't know, that's basically the next version of .NET Core. If you, uh, it is, the naming can, can throw you off a little bit, but it's basically .NET Core vNext and .NET 5 includes support for both Blazor Server and Blazor WebAssembly and has a whole bunch of additional goodies that we added to, to, to the stack. So yeah, Blazor now is fully shipped, fully supported, both running it on the server and on WebAssembly. I've just started digging into .NET 5. We're, you know, we're not using it in uh, production application. But while, while you guys have made the transition from 3.1 to 5 easy, as far as I can tell, there are a lot of changes under the hood and a lot of simplification and things to make our lives easier. So, yeah, I, uh, the, thank you. The upgrade from 3.1 or Blazor WebAssembly 3.2 to 5 should be relatively seamless. There, there were a few... Okay through changes that you might make it make it hidden to, but it's like, I, I know some people were following along with Blazor in its early days, like during its experimental phase and the early previews, and we were changing stuff all around. Those days are done. Like Blazor is now part of the platform. And so we have a very high compatibility bar now that we maintain. So the upgrade from 3.1 to 5 should be a, a, a relatively painless upgrade. And yeah, a lot of stuff in 5 got dramatically improved. Um, dramatically improved performance is one of the, um, big areas that we we worked on in Blazor, especially for Blazor WebAssembly, the component rendering and JSON serialization in Blazor WebAssembly in .NET 5 is like two to three times faster than what it was with the Blazor WebAssembly 3.2 release that we had just released like, I don't know, six months earlier. It's a lot of good stuff there that happened under the covers in terms of uh, optimizing the runtime, making it better, faster, stronger. So, so is um, five the LTS, or is that going to be six or seven? Or? That will be six. Yeah. So .NET is now releasing on a yearly cadence. The three zero three one thing was kind of a one off weirdness. Where three mm. one came very fast after three zero. We wanted to get an LTS release out quickly, based on the three zero bits. But from here on out, it's a major release every year in in November. Every November, you can expect another major release of .NET. We just did .NET five uh, in November twenty twenty one. .NET six will be uh, sorry, .NET 5 in, in 2020, uh, November. .NET 6 will be in November of 2021. And every even-numbered release will be an LTS release. So .NET 5 was a current release. All that means is that uh, if you're, if you're uh, adopting current releases, the expectation is that you will then just upgrade to the next release in a relatively mm -hmm. short window. It's like a three-month, I think, uh, window uh, of support before the previous current release falls out of support. So if you adopt, adopt .NET 5, that's great. So you've got all the latest, greatest features. Um, when .NET 6 comes, uh, comes along, you should expect to upgrade to .NET 6 in relatively short order. The LTS train has a much longer support policy. It's like one year after the next LTS release, I think, is when uh, that those go out of support. So you basically get a, about three years of support out of an LTS release. .NET Core 3.1 was the last one. .NET 6 will be the, the next one. I think we should standardize on a naming convention. It should be .NET 10, 21H1. Yeah, out of our Windows friends. Yeah, mm. it's all just .NET actually. Like you know, right? <laughs> .NET 10 from here on out. Yeah, that would yep, be. and then yeah, 21H1, 21H2, all that kind of stuff. That works for me. I uh, it's 
it's funny because I've been dealing with that a lot, dealing with um, Azure VM images and the number of images and their their prefixes or their versions is is like, you know, thousands, even if you're just looking at Windows 10 Pro. So, you know, I, I, I get it. I get it works, but there's a, <laughs> there's a lot out there. Yeah. So as far as Blazor is concerned, now that, right, you guys have had a solid year under your belt or more as a, you know, released or, or production framework. Do you see more people using the uh, the WebAssembly versus the server version? Or, or uh, what's the percentage that you've seen? The So overall, Blazor adoption is going Great. Like, I, th- I think we recently yeah. crossed like 100,000 monthly active users of, of Blazor. Nice. And it's one of the fastest growing .NET workloads of all the things that we ship support for in, in .NET. So and that's they going should really all be well. listening to this show. Please. <laughs> 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 please. <laughs> um, the split between Blazor Server and Blazor WebAssembly, last I looked at those numbers, it was still weighted towards Blazor Server because Blazor okay. Server had shipped previously. It has an LTS right. release. I mean, there's also a lot to really like about Blazor Server in terms of simplicity. Your code is on the server already. So if you want to access server-specific resources, like talk to your database or, or do anything that requires the power of your, your server machines, well, you're already there. Like your component, codes, your component code is running on the server, and that can really make uh, building apps just very fast and very productive. Like I, t- I talked to a lot of people that build a lot of line of business style internal applications that they just whip out with Blazor Server because it's just so easy. Blazor WebAssembly usage is, is growing. We have uh, the, the, the telemetry numbers, unfortunately, got a little bit fuzzy once we shipped .NET 5 because one of the things we were using to distinguish between Blazor Server apps and Blazor WebAssembly apps was the target framework moniker that you used for the project. Uh, when we shipped Blazor WebAssembly initially, you would target .NET Standard 2.1 which is like a specification for a specific API surface area. And it's big, like .NET Standard 2.1 has a lot of stuff, but it wasn't all of what's available in like .NET Core 3.1 at the time. In .NET 5, we updated Blazor WebAssembly to support the entire surface area of .NET 5. Like you now target .NET 5 when you build your Blazor WebAssembly apps, which is great in terms of having that functionality available to you. But unfortunately for telemetry, it means it's harder for us to tell whether your project is a Blazor WebAssembly app or a Blazor server app. I think we've done some things now where we have a a capability that we're we're adding to the project so we can get that, that data better. But both are growing, both are going really well. They both have the, their places. Like if you want a fully client-side model, Blazor WebAssembly is where it's at because all your code is going to be running on the user's machines. You can offload that work from the server onto their machine. You can support offline scenarios like, like build up a PWA, a progressive web app with Blazor WebAssembly. You can just leverage static site hosting to host your Blazor WebAssembly app because you don't. There, there is no required server component and in fact, we recently released a static uh, site hosting solution on Azure called Azure Static Web Apps. I'm using support. that. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. great. Has support yeah. for both JavaScript-based applications as well as Blazor. It's basically right. a Blazor WebAssembly front end with a serverless like Azure Functions backend. So that's a really nice, com- compelling model in terms of uh, uh, you know just pay as you go for your, your server resources. Yeah, I'm using that and I actually uh, did a video on it, you know, and, and because it's in preview, it's free right now. Of course, it won't be that way for forever. But I noticed when I was going through the docs, because I ported over an Angular app that Blazor was was supporting. I was like, oh, very cool. I'm going to have to check that out, right? That's great that you have that option, right, from a static site standpoint. So, so one of the biggest things to watch out for on Blazor server that caught me a little bit off guard is that whenever you push out an update, Unless you're handling something, everybody that's connected gets this, you must reconnect yeah. type of issue. Has that <laughs> right. been, been, yeah. Is there better ways to handle that nowadays in the newer versions of Blazor? Yeah, so the just to explain what happens there, like you, you are running all the components server side. So all the state for the user's interactions are being managed on the server. So, and we call that state a circuit. So a client connects, we set up that circuit for that particular client, that particular user. They have a persistent connection to to the server. They're able to use the app and they get a a very fluid 
uh, interactive experience. But if that circuit goes away, like like if you restart the server, deploy an update that causes the process to, to recycle, um, then the browser will be like, ah, my, my umbilical cord just got cut. I don't know what to do. I'm gonna try, let me try and reconnect. Let me try and it'll ping the server to see if it can reconnect. And Blazor server will give you a little bit of UI and some uh, framework pieces to let you know that that's what it's trying to do. But even when the server comes back up, the circuit at that point is gone. Like it can, the only thing it can really do is establish a new circuit again. And then it's up to the application really to persist any state that was part of the original circuit and try and rehydrate it again with the, with the new circuit. So what you end up having to do is detecting those cases in your application. You can decide to force a refresh client side, like basically have a piece, a little piece of JavaScript that we have some docs on that says like, oh, I'm in this situation where the circuit is, is no longer there on the server. I'm going to force the browser to refresh to create a new circuit. And then as an application author, you can also uh, take any state that you want to, to be able to rehydrate and persist it in like local storage. We actually uh, just shipped a component with .NET 5 called, we call it protected browser storage, where it's a way for you to save state into local storage in the browser that's been uh, data protected so that you know that that's data that you actually put there and that you can then rehydrate again server side. So that's one strategy they can use for that. But yeah, you got you do have to be aware of that with the Blazor server model. It is a fully connected and stateful model. Yeah, that sounds probably one, one of the best techniques is to put their client state in the local storage because there's situations where it hasn't been sent down to the server yet. So if you try to keep it on the server, you might not have the latest state that, they, that they're working on if they're figuring out a long form or shopping cart or things like that, keep it local and then have code to, you know, re, like you said, repopulate that when that the, connects, that circuit's reconnected. The timeliness of the data should be fairly recent because remember all the UI interactions are being sent server side. Like as if you're listening for like on change events or on input events, like the server is finding out about all of those and getting that, that data. I mean, if you if you were to deal with it completely client side without even the server seeing it at all, like browser the the protected local storage uh, feature that we shipped wouldn't even be a, a thing you could use because that's an API you call from the server to tell that then sends a call back down to the browser to persist something in local storage client side. If you want to even persist something before it's even had a chance to get to the server, you'd have to write a little bit of JavaScript yourself. But if, some, if somebody's filling out a form, you're not going to send every keystroke back to the server. You're going to wait until they click a button for save or continue or next yeah, or something yep. like that. So whatever they'd filled out on that page hadn't gotten set yet unless you you are sending every keystroke. I mean, you could technically like, I'm, I'm sure there are websites that do this. Like on like when you tab off of a field, you right. could decide like, well, I want to remember that field because like if, right. if the user refreshes Just the browser, I want it to come back again. Like when you're filling out a GitHub mm -hmm. issue on GitHub, I think GitHub will do this type of stuff where they'll mm -hmm. remember that you were typing something. So I'm sure they're listening for some events as part of as part yeah. of doing that. So you, you may decide that that's the user experience that you want, but uh, yeah, you certainly don't have to send. Yeah, it's something that for the developers know and think about and figure out how they want to handle it. Yeah. yeah. We know. Yeah. I actually have some experience with this because, like I mentioned, we we have a server-side Blazor app in production right now. Ooh. Um, and yeah, right? And I have, I inherited it from someone else, but I'm managing at this point, right? And so I am I am pushing updates to our staging and production environments. And, and it's an admin tool. It's it's a portal. So, so it's not necessarily um, going to be used by a ton of people. But when when I push an update and I go back to the site, right, I've got the bar up top that says uh, something along the lines of, you know, uh, the connection has been lost. Pr please reload, reload your browser. And the reload is actually you could actually just click it and it'll refresh it. You know, and, and for our purposes, that works fine. Right. Because we're we're not going to have hundreds or thousands of people working in this app. And typically the way we've set it up is. We do have some some forms, but they're typically smaller. And so really, you're going to be doing very small chunks of work and then saving them, or you'll be toggling state for, for, for instance, metadata bindings, which is the term one of the coworkers came up with for Power BI connection. You're just toggling the state on and off, right? And so that's it's automatically handled on the server. One of the interesting things, though, that I've noticed that we run into is 
when I am developing and right and and I write some some code that doesn't work or something poorly, which never happens, right? Instead of getting the bar at the top, you actually get a a bar at the bottom saying, you know, an exception has occurred, a reload. And of course, I can uh, inspect and see exactly what happened in the browser tools um, and then go back and resolve my issue. But I I like the way that works, at least from a development standpoint, because, right, you're, you're going to break things. And, you know, I can go look at the, the work that one of my coworkers did and step through it and get that exception and be like, okay, you know, where did this come from? So I appreciate that instead of it, nothing happening and, and just the screen stays where it is and you're like, okay, what's going on, right? Yeah, so. I mean, we did we did explicit work to, to enable that experience. Like we wanted you to have some sort of notification as a developer in the browser to let you know that an exception has been thrown. And in Blazor server, you, you kind of, like that exception usually is actually, is it will always, it's happening on the server. Like you have a dot .NET exception right. that happens server side, which will get logged in like the ASMIC core logs. But in order to make it more visible, we flow it down to to the browser. You have that you know in app de- development only, but in app experience to let you know hey an error has occurred. I think we even pump it into the browser console so that you can yep. see the exception in the browser console, even though it was originally happening on the server. With yeah, uh, when, that experience is a little bit more natural because you're mm. running the .NET code in the browser. So when an exception right. happens, the error, the development mode error handling logic just catches the exception, pops up that UI, and you see the exception in the console naturally. With Blazor Server, it required a, a bit more work. So I'm glad that that was I can imagine. fruitful. Improved, uh, <laughs> well, no, it's great because, like I said, when, when, I, when I go to inspect it and look at the console, it actually will tell me the line where it broke in whatever service right? Just like it would in Visual Studio, right? If, as you're coding there. And so it's easy to go pinpoint where the problem is. So it's it's definitely been very helpful. And which version of, uh, of, of .NET are you guys currently on for your, for your application? 3.1. Yep. 3.1. Do you, and yep. uh, have you looked at the move to 5? And is, uh, has there been any issues with that? Or is that uh, something you're still contemplating? Well, we uh we haven't looked at five yet. Um, we've honestly got our, got our hands full with the work that the client wants, and you know of course it takes some time to move everything from one version to the other. And I actually dealt with moving from Power BI REST API version two to version three this past week because we needed it for some new functionality, and it had breaking changes. You know strings to GUIDs and changing some of the the workspace rights access and stuff. So I, I do, it's on the roadmap. It's just a ways off. <laughs> well, I hope when you get to it, that I, I, I'm hoping that you'll find that it's actually not not much work. Like, like I, there okay. probably, it may be some little things that you hit, but it should be a very yeah. compatible release. And there's lots right. of awesome new stuff that we added in, in .NET 5. Like besides the Blazor WebAssembly performance work, like we did, well, we did more stuff related to performance by like adding additional components. Like we have support now okay. for uh, virtualization. Like if you have long yeah. lists okay. of data that you need to render and you don't want to be rendering all of it, you just want to render the parts that are actually visible. We give you an out of the box virtualized component that you can just replace your, you probably have some for each loop someplace that uh, is, if you're only looping, you know, 10, 20 times, it's fine. But if you're looping over like a hundred thousand rows of a, of a data set, that can yeah. really slow the rendering down. You just replace the for each loop with the virtualized component, and it takes care of only displaying the chunks of data that are currently visible on the screen. Oh, um, that's awesome. We did yeah. CSS isolation. Like uh, if you want to have CSS styles that are isolated to like just one component, you can now mm-hmm. uh, pair a component with a CSS file that will be scoped to just the UI that's rendered by that component, or you can also have it chain down the component hierarchy if you want. Like there's a, a gesture to say that this should go deep, like the, the this CSS should apply to this component and all its children. So that can really help with like managing like CSS in large projects. Uh, there's a bunch of WebAssembly stuff like lazy loading. You can now like lazily mm-hmm. load different parts of your app. So if you, instead of having to download the whole Blazor WebAssembly app as one payload, if you want to say mm-hmm. like, well, this page or this section of the app over here, don't bother loading that yet. Wait until they actually browse to that section of the app and then we'll download that stuff. You can now do that with, with Blazor WebAssembly and .NET 5. A lot of you good know, jobs drop stuff. Like, yeah. so you can break well, it into modules. Um, yep, yep. Yeah, we, we okay. talked about the, the 
hurdles in overcoming having mono, having to load all that in the browser back in 2019. And it's obvious you guys have made significant strides in, in that area, right? And the lazy loading of the modules makes it even easier. So I'm definitely looking forward to digging into it, right? Just going to have to make the time for it. <laughs> yeah, the download size for a Blazor WebAssembly app now is about, like if you just do file new project, create a default, default app, the entire app, including the runtime, the core libraries, the uh, like the core framework libraries and the app libraries itself, and then all the CSS styling, like we include Bootstrap, everything will, after it's published and trimmed and, and such, will weigh in at about 2.1 megabytes is the total size, which, you know, if you're if you're have some, you know, really nicely tree shaken JavaScript, that will sound big. But considering you're downloading a whole .NET runtime and framework and and it just works, it's it's pretty remarkable how much how much you're able to fit in that in that amount of size. We're doing a lot of work with the um, IL trimming team, the .NET IL trimming team at, on the .NET team to um, make it so that we can remove as much of the uh, unused code from the application as we possibly can. Like we do do static analysis through the assemblies that are going to be downloaded, remove assemblies that aren't being used, remove code from, from assemblies that aren't, that aren't being touched as far as we can tell through, through static analysis. We use broadly compression techniques. We use uh, all, all the normal HTTP caching layers as well. Like we aggressively are caching things. So once you, once you do that first download, uh, it's now cached and you never, have to hit that uh, that download again for for that app deployment at least. So it's it's tree shaking the runtime and not just your application code. It's tree shaking all of the .NET libraries in the app. The, the runtime is is the is actually a, a chunk of WebAssembly. That's like that's the thing that's okay. going to run the the .NET code in the assemblies. That payload right now is static. Like you you get the runtime and it is what it is. But like system.dll and you know so the, all, all so the, the framework it's going to tree shake that. It will tree shake all those things. Yeah, when you when you start the app in development, we don't do any tree shaking yet. So if you if you create your first Blazor app and look at the network trace, you'll see a, quite a bit more get downloaded. Like maybe like nine, 10 megs of stuff. And that's because we're not, we're not trimming anything during development because we want the, uh, the development flow to be as fast and iterative as possible. But when you publish the app, that's when we'll run the IL, the, the, the IL trimmer, we'll comp pre-compress a lot of the static assets. And so everything gets really shrunk down. And that's when we'll be doing that static analysis to tree shake is what they call it in the JavaScript world, but we we call it IL trimming in the .NET world. Remove all the unused code as far as we can tell through static analysis. So, do you think the use case is more for people that are making like admin apps and things like that, or do you think there's a there's a case for public facing websites given the two no, main payloads? Uh, it's it's for any if you're a .NET developer and you want to build a web app, like this is a, a fantastic solution. We we do work with people that absolutely are doing public facing web applications. Actually, at .NET Conf in November, uh, there was a startup. Uh, they're called uh, the Postage, and they their their business is helping families and people deal with afterlife concerns for their loved ones, uh, like like being able. How do you get access to their their accounts and passwords and papers and stuff when someone passes away, and you know you're in a very stressful situation? Uh, the Postage is a startup that uh, helps people with managing that data and, and transitioning it to, to other family members. They built their entire application and service using Blazor, their web application, and that's a that's a public public facing service. So you absolutely can use it for public facing stuff. If you're like hypersensitive to like you know every kilobyte and every like millisecond of startup time, Blazor WebAssembly is probably not going to be your best best solution. It's I think it's very analogous to like uh, the whole argument between native code and managed code, right? Like, like mm. if you really care about every ounce of performance and memory management, then you're going to write your code in, in native code and really tune everything. But for a whole lot of stuff, writing in managed code is fine and it works great and it's more than good enough. I think Blazor is, is very much in, in that spirit. If if for your if your app scenario two two megabyte download isn't going to work because you're on you know you're going to have users under very slow connections or spotty network and you just that's just too much for them to download then yeah Blazor WebAssembly probably don't want to use it for that but if you know you got a decent network connection they're on modern browsers and then it's a great solution it can be very very productive. Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. 
We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. I think you know, a blazer I haven't, uh, as, uh, as web forms done right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, I mean, just think about, you know, how many websites out there are still running web forms and they're still doing just fine. And that's both management side and public side. So if it's can, web form still works, then blazer is definitely going to work. Daniel, I don't, I don't know if you can speak to this, but I mean, I haven't done this recently, but I know working with angular for you know, the last five plus years that angular itself can have a fairly large download size, even if you're doing lazy loading and tree shaking, right? So I don't know that there's, especially if it's a production enterprise application, that there's necessarily going to be that significant of a difference in size between those two frameworks. Yeah, I have a lot of people that joke, like, the first image you download, you've already blown through that download quota anyway. <laughs> like, what's the big deal? Yeah, and, and for many apps, that's absolutely the correct. Like, the, 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 mm. this, this amount of size is not is a non-issue. I totally get that there are apps where, no, this, I, I, every, like, 10 milliseconds of delayed start time mm -hmm. equates, like, this much money or this much traffic from my site, and I just cannot deal with that, and then I get that. And that's, Blazor may not be the best solution for those cases. But for a broad set of apps, we think it's actually a, an awesome solution. You 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 end up being able to do full stack web development with a, a .NET skill set. Like if you're a .NET developer, all of your tools, like the the language skills, the the library skills that you know, suddenly become applicable across the the web application. When we talked to the this this startup, the Postage, about their development experience, that was the thing that they were just over the moon happy about is that they were able to take a very small .NET savvy development team and do just a ton of stuff and have the flexibility of having people move back and forth between the front end and the back end seamlessly. Uh, they just thought that that was a, a huge productivity gain and the you know the the overhead of having to do the Blazor thing, pull down the WebAssembly mm -hmm. runtime and such was like not a non-issue. Well, and you know, from from my perspective, it really seems like Blazor has a lot of the same functionality. Of course, I'm speaking from Angular because this is what I'm most familiar with when it comes to the JavaScript frameworks, right? There, there's a lot of similarities there. And so going coming from Angular to Blazor for me was, was honestly easy because I already knew C Sharp and then the component module and the, the structure of Blazor was, was very familiar, right? So... We may have we may have taken some learnings from from <laughs> nothing wrong with that. Then, Caleb, you also were familiar with you know web forms too. So you said web forms, yeah. and it's very similar oh, yeah. to that as well with the components that are there. And you know, I mentioned web forms. You know, I know you guys have been working on a Blazor for web form developers to make that transition. So. Yeah, that's Has actually an open an open source project. It's a community effort where there are a bunch of uh, of people on GitHub that are working on components for Blazor that basically look like the WebForms controls. So it's like mm -hmm. a like right. a WebForms compat pack almost in some sense for for Blazor, where you it makes it easier if you have a WebForms app and you want to move it onto .NET Core. These are a set of components you could potentially use to to ease that migration mm -hmm. by basically giving you code that looks almost the same as your ASPX files, but uh, done with, with modern Blazor Razor files. And Sean, nothing against web forms, but when you said web forms and that I have a history, I actually tried to remember <laughs> in my web forms knowledge and it's gone. <laughs> it's, it's non-existent. Okay, but, I, I, uh, won't, uh, I won't mention view state. <laughs> hmm. Oh, that, that's one thing you'll never forget, but I don't think about it. You mentioned though, right, that you guys have developed this open source component package that that can help you transition from web forms to Blazor. I mean, There's also a lot of support. Like I said, it's, it's a community project. open source. We didn't right. do it; like a bunch of people in the community jumped on it together. So that's. I mean, we try to be open. The ecosystem to Blazor is super important. So we we love yeah. projects like that. But yeah, I can't say that we built it. They, a bunch of well, um, that know web well, forms. I was going to say that there there is already rich support in the, what is it, plugins or platform uh, component space, like Telerik. And for instance, we're using Radzen because it's free and it, and it does what we need it to do, All right? It's it's great to have that support. And and again, right, to your, 
you're modularizing pieces of it as needed and you can just plug and play. Yeah. Yeah. That's the component model. We find we have a right. component model again in, in, in <laughs> I love it. Like, so like so you mentioned Telerik, like uh, Dev Express, Syncfusion, Infogistics, Grape City, Radzen, um, JQ Widgets, I think is another one. There's a bunch of uh, commercial component libraries that you can right. use for Blazor that give you all sorts of stuff like, you know, powerful grids and tab views and things. And there's also a lot of just open source, free open source projects out there that you can grab. Blazorize and MapBlazor, like there's there's a bunch of other libraries that the community just put together that you can that you can leverage. Just reuse what someone else has already done. <laughs> and I completely forgot to mention this, and this is of course uh, a sh- uh, well, I guess it's a shameless plug, right? I recently started a YouTube channel, and the beginning of that, I did a post for C Sharp Advent from Matt Groves, and I did a Blazor Advent calendar. So I did a series of videos using Blazor to create an advent calendar, which was a lot of fun. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. One thing I was, I was thinking about with the like the download size, one thing you can do to also mitigate the download size that we added in .NET 5 is the ability to pre-render the application. You can actually take your Blazor WebAssembly app, take the components, run them. When the first request comes in, you run them initially on the server, generate and you do that using MVC, actually, like or, or a Razor page. You have a page review that you basically execute your components as part of that page. The HTML then goes right down to the browser. You get a, a very fast initial page load while the runtime and the assemblies and everything is being downloaded in the background and getting started up. So that's a way you can give a, a much faster perceived initial load for your, uh, your Blazor application while all the other stuff is being downloaded in the background. That can also help with those uh, load time uh, issues. And actually that whole model of being able to run components from the server is a key part of the the whole story. Like Blazor really is part of ASP.NET Core. And we think of it as complementary to the the existing web frameworks that we've, we've shipped for years, like MVC and Razor Pages. Like you have the ability to take a component and render it as part of a page, like doing you know normal server-side rendering, but have this like little island of rich UI interactivity that normally would require you to write JavaScript, but you've done it with a combination of Blazor and MVC. So if you have like an, a big MVC app, for example, or a Razor Pages app, and you're like, oh man, this Blazor stuff sounds great, but I, I have an MVC app. Well, well, hold on. No, you actually, you can <laughs> take Blazor and sprinkle it in or, or add it in to your existing applications. They're intended to be used uh, together in that fashion. And pre-rendering is just one use case where we leverage that functionality. I actually... Um... They got me to thinking, I'm curious about your opinion on something. Uh, for people who aren't all that familiar with Blazor, right, you have Razor pages, which which are what Blazor sits on top of. But in those pages for Blazor, you can have, like you said, you have your using statements, you can have some CSS, you have your HTML, and then you have your app code block, which is where all of the C-sharp magic happens. I've also seen some people actually taking that whole code block and putting it in a separate class. And, and basically, yeah, the code it, behind instead of, mo- yeah. Kind of model. Yeah. And yeah, I think when, we, when we last talked in 2019, I don't think that was really working well. Or you, know, you had to really kind of force it in to do that. Kind well, of I have good edge, but <laughs> that, <laughs> is, that, that is totally supported and, to- and it works yep. great now. I think maybe at the time, I don't remember how, when we actually got this work done. But there was a period of time where you could do coded behind, but you had to do it using like a, an inheritance model. Like you would set up like a base class in your in your code behind, and then you would inherit it from that that base class in your component. Or I think that was right. the direction. No, that yeah, yeah that, that was the that was the direction back then. Yeah. Which has implications on like the visibility of the members on the, the base class versus the, mm-hmm. the, the, the stuff that's in the Razor file. Because the stuff that's in the Razor file gets compiled into a class. And so you had to sometimes change visibility of members. Like if you moved code from the Razor file into the base class, you sometimes had to change it from being private to being protected at least so that you could right. see. In Blazor now, that's no longer the model for go behind. It's now all based on partial classes. The, the okay. classes we generate from the Razor files are partial classes. So you just have a code behind that is a part, part of that partial class. And now all the visibility rules are the same. So it's a much more fluid model. We're also mm-hmm. adding tooling gestures in uh, the Razor editor 
Uh, it's, it's actually in the new razor editor that we've been working on where you can like right click on the code block in your razor file and you can say like please refactor this into a code behind for me i don't want i don't want this oh, here nice. to have it in a separate file um so if you yeah. prefer that model that will be a, a much easier transition to do awesome good i uh that that was i was curious your your perspective on that but right it seems like you can have your cake and eat it too basically however you want to approach it yeah it's a it's so. an interesting decision points like whether to code behind or not to code behind right like i think <laughs> devs have been trained forever that code behind is the way to go and if you put too putting too much code inside the view right is uh mm -hmm. is sinful like that is that is a horrible terrible thing separation to do. of concerns separation of concerns amen amen right yeah, <laughs> so the 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 reason why we decided to not do that with blazer why we have that at code block it's not, it's not because we don't believe in separation of concerns. We still believe mm -hmm. in separation of concerns. It's just that all the, for the most part, the code that you should be putting in that at code block is part of the concern of the component. Like you have UI event handlers or you know, the state of the component is there. So it's as a, a, as a single class that has one concern, it made sense to us, well, that's part of the concern of that class. So why not have it in, why have two files when it's all really mm -hmm. the same concern? We're not trying to put like business logic in that code, code behind, right. uh, sorry, in that code block. That should go in a right. different class because that's a different concern. But if as long as it's just about the UI, it seems fine to put it there. And that philosophy has also really, been, I think, been evangelized heavily by the Vue community. Like Vue tends mm -hmm. to operate much more in that single file mode. Um, I think it, React does too, right? With React, their, their... I'm less, you may be right. Yeah. I, I'm less, I mean, React has uh, yeah, well, they have JSX stuff, stuff yeah, that, right yeah. inside. Yeah. To some extent, right. that's true yeah. as well. That's fair. Yeah, um, so, yeah. so a lot of those are embedded, yeah. The downsides though is like, we, we you then end up in this mode where you're writing a lot more C-sharp in a, a .razor file and that has implications on like tooling and other experiences. Like if you want all, like the, the C-sharp, our friends on the C-sharp team will go do a whole bunch of great work on their editor and all have all these fancy refactorings. Well, with Razor files, we have this mishmash of HTML and CSS and JavaScript and C-sharp. And we're trying to give you a great tooling experience over all of that. And for a long time in Razor, you, you, you kind of missed out on some of the C-sharp editing Ex, uh, experience when you were dealing with C-sharp in the Razor file versus a C-sharp file. So moving into a code behind does have that benefit currently. Although mm -hmm. I mentioned the, our new Razor tooling investment that we've been working on, we are completely rewriting the Razor uh, editor and we are re-layering things so that it would be much, much easier for you to give you a, a full fidelity C-sharp experience within your, your Razor files. So I think that will get addressed over time. I uh, think a lot of people would be happy if it would do it at least like virtually in the editor. So you're actually working on one file, but the editor makes them seem like they're all separate. That you know the HTML part is on, you know, kind of like the old design view versus code behind view. You could little tabs that says this is the HTML part, this is the code block part, this is your CSS, but it's actually really just one file. You mean as part of the user experience? Like you would you yeah. would like like a split view that would split those things out? Right. Uh, I don't know if that would how well that because because a, a lot of times you the relationship between the the markup and the code is really important. Mm -hmm. Like you'll have a for each loop, and inside right. the for each loop you'll have a piece of markup. Like you're generating list items in a list. The for each is wrapped in a like an unordered list or an ordered yeah. list tag, yeah. and then you have a for each loop, and then you you're generating list items for that that tag. If you separated those out, yeah. you can no longer see what you're generating inside the loop. But yeah, that's stuff that's stuff that's mixed in with the HTML. But when you're talking yeah. about the code block. It's actually, you know, a block of C sharp that's down at the bottom of the file or somewhere else. I don't know. That was just maybe it'd be good to like thought, give you a tool that makes it look separate. Yeah. yeah. So, so how how is this new editor coming along? Any, any ideas when you guys are going to release it? So <laughs> yes. So the the new Razor editor has been a, a work in progress for almost I think almost a year now. It's been we've been working okay. on it for a while, trying to get it back up to parity on a new architecture and adding a whole bunch of features. Right. It's been available for like quite quite a, a, a fair amount of time as a preview feature. Like you can check a checkbox in VS to turn it on. You just go into the preview features and select the experimental razor editor option or something like that. In 16.9, we are thinking about turning it on as being the default razor editor. So in the uh, this most recent preview, I think it was 16.9 preview three, the razor editor, the new razor editor there is actually 
really good. And it has a whole bunch of new functionality that you don't even get in the old Razor Editor. And we're going to start sort of staging it out, like, you know, doing chunks of 10% of users and see how that goes. Watching to see, you know, how many people are turning it back off? How many bugs are we seeing as people move over to the new editor? If that goes smoothly, then the idea is that by the the time we ship 16.9, that should be on fully by default. Nice. It looks like we still have some issues that may delay till, till 16.10, but we'll see how it goes. But definitely it's worth giving a, a, a good try now. Like if you're not using the new Razor Editor, trying it out with 16.9 Preview 3, which just shipped with the experimental okay. option turned on, is it's a good time to, to give that a shot with your with your projects, both MBC and uh, Blazor projects, because it's cool. both our Razor. Yeah, yeah, right. It's, it's interesting because our web app, which is multi-tenant, and then our admin app, which isn't right it's but it's the admin portal to manage multi-tenant in our blazer app things are much for at least to me are much cleaner right because we we have those component they have that component model and we're able to to not only reuse c sharp but reuse big chunks of html and css which in our web app we could probably get there we're just not there yet right blazer makes that very easy so yeah good good well, that's that's kind of what, what .NET 5 uh, was. I think we covered most of the new things we did there. We did some other yeah. smaller features, like uh, we, we made a bunch of improvements to JavaScript interop. So if you need to call okay. into JavaScript, we now support JavaScript isolation. Like we can uh, load JavaScript from ES6 modules and give you like full JavaScript object references from your C-sharp code into the JavaScript code. We added nice. support for radio groups, uh, iasync disposable okay. on components. The ability to like set the UI focus on elements from C sharp without having to drop to, to JavaScript for that. Oh, awesome! Those were all yeah. five features, but right now we're now turning our attention to Vnext. Like .NET six right. is is just <laughs> ten, to ten, ramp up. <laughs> <laughs> ten, <laughs> not, not, not yet. Yeah, and uh, that's been that's been fun. We have a bunch of uh, new things coming for for Blazor in the in the mm-hmm. in the future. Hot reload is oh nice on at six and that's not okay. just for blazer that's like for all like all the ui stacks whether you like like xaml based devs asmic right. core mbc devs blazer we're doing a, a a broad hot reload push across dotnet in dotnet six so you'll be able to like edit your code for your component and see that pop up in the the browser without the app mm-hmm. even having to restart like we'll basically calculate like the diff of the IL and, and then shove that into the running application uh, so that you can see your changes really, really fast and also see them potentially without having to reset any state. Like if you're in the middle of a big form or a tree view or something, uh, you can preserve the so, application state while you're reloading things. Real-time design. Is that, is that, is that .NET run watch or watch run? Because I've used that some already in my Blazor testing. And I definitely see the benefits, but I think it's still got a little ways to go, right? The .NET Watch is a tool we've shipped for a while that will do file watching of your your project, and it will it can then do some action based on when something changes. And usually, you run .NET Watch Run, and what that will do is it will say, well, if any code file changes, tear down the the app that's already running, restart it, and run mm-hmm. it again. That's what it uh, historically has done. But we've been gradually adding more and more features to .NET Watch to make the web development experience more fluid. Mm-hmm. For example, .NET Watch Run will now auto-launch the browser for you. So if you, if you run .NET Watch Run on a, on a ASMIC core or Blazor application, you'll see the browser just come up at the right address. So you don't have to like copy the whatever your port <laughs> is for local development. Uh, it will also now auto-refresh the browser for you. So mm-hmm. if you're editing your code, it will detect that edit, tear down the app, restart it, and then trigger a refresh in the browser for you automatically. If you, if you look in the browser tab, like the, the where the title... Get the little lines. These little yeah. things, yes, that will right. show that that is in the process of, of happening. So we call that auto restart and auto refresh. So we're auto restarting the app and, auto, and refreshing it in the browser. That is also now available from Visual Studio. Uh, Visual Studio has always done auto restart for apps that you run without the debugger. Like if you control F5, it will do that mm. same file watching trick. In fact, it will do it a little bit smoother because it will actually like hold on to requests that are in flight until the app has fully restarted and then hand off the request to the restarted app. .NET Watch is a little bit 
rougher around how it how it handles that. But now there's also an option in Visual Studio that you can you have to turn it on. It's not it's not on by default, but you can turn on the auto refresh support in VS as well. So if you go into the options and ASP.NET Core, there's a check there's a a drop down to say, I want you to auto restart and I want you to auto refresh. And you can get the same experience that you get with .NET Watch Run in VS as well. And that's really nice. Like it, it feels yeah. like hot reload, although it's not actually leaving the app running. That's the difference. Like in mm-hmm. both those .NET Watch Run and the thing that VS is now doing are, are fully tearing down the app and restarting it again and refreshing it in the browser every time you want to make a change. Hot reload will let us inject changes into the app kind of like editing continue does, but without having to do a, a an app restart, like just leaving the app running as it currently is. That'll be faster and you can you can keep your state that you currently have. Do you see a uh, hot reload replacing the the watch and, and these auto restart features or, or they're 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 two different options, right, that you can choose based on your your workflow? You'll probably fall back, I think. Like you'll you'll okay. there there there's certain types of edits that mm-hmm. the .NET runtime knows how to handle. And there are more, we call those polite, I call those polite edits. And then there are rude edits. <laughs> we do things that it's like, I can't, I can't just patch that in. Like that's not, that's not something we can right. just do at runtime. So the we'll probably give you a tooling experience where if we can hot reload, we will. And if we find that we can't, like if it fails, then we will fall back to an auto restart, auto refresh like like experience. And there'll probably be options where you can like like let me know before you restart, or like a way to pause so that you know you're not restarting when you don't want to. Those types of things. But as a default experience, the thing we're thinking about is what if it was just on by default, hot reload, fall back to auto auto restart and auto refresh, and that's the sort of the mainline way that you now develop your web applications. Great, you know it's. I've been used to that in Angular for years. So when when I switch back and forth between Angular and C sharp, right there's there's that transition I have. Of course, they're they're two two different tools, very different you know ecosystems really. But Angular, right? I make a change in in my TypeScript and save, and it's automatically over there. And C sharp, I make a change. It does like you said, doesn't quite work out, and I have to stop debugging and restart. Um, so I'm looking forward to hot reloading. Very cool. We want Hot Reload also to work with whether you're de- attached with the debugger or not. So that will be okay. that that distinction. Hopefully, will become more blurred as well. And even being able to transition, like, I love it if you could like start without the debugger with Hot Reload, mm. and if you decide, oh no, I I now need to debug, that you can still attach and keep the Hot Reload experience going. Those, I mean, we're still early in the .NET six release, so figuring out all the details of how that's going to work and exactly what that experience will look like is still being worked out, but fingers crossed. That's what, uh, that's what I'm cheering for. I tell you, Daniel, you've, you, you've made me feel really good today. A lot of stuff coming up, existing and coming up that I need to dig more into to make my life that much more fun. Cause well, blazer is fun. It should be coming out soon. Like we should start <laughs> seeing the first ones, uh, in February, I think is when we're expecting that, that first drop. I wouldn't expect much yeah. in the first preview of .NET six. It will be mostly like, mm-hmm. can we build it and can we ship it type of release? And the following previews, like as we get closer to the, the middle of the year, you should see, start to see a lot more of the, the new functionality come into place. And I maybe you've heard about .NET Maui, like a lot of the Maui stuff mm-hmm. we're expecting to start to see in .NET six. Blazor WebAssembly ahead of time compilation. We're expecting also to do in .NET 6. You should see previews of those, hopefully in the first half of this year. And then starting to deliver on the, the story of bringing Blazor beyond the web to like native application development. We're gonna start uh, bringing that into .NET 6 uh, first half of, the, of this year as well, specifically for like desktop app development. Like imagine having a native desktop app that can run on Windows, can run on Mac, that you can run your Blazor components in and render them to like an embedded web view control within that application. And now you can share your web UI with the uh, with your web app, your website as well as your, your native desktop apps. So an electron type thing? Yeah, very much. Like very like think electron, but with .NET instead of instead of JavaScript. And mobile eventually will be part of that story as well. I don't know if we're going to get to mobile in, in .NET 6. Currently, I think it's going to be uh, it's uh, scoped out, but having that same style of app be able to come to mobile, we, we have that in experimental form with the Mobile Blazor Bindings Project, which lets you do desktop and mobile, both web UI, hybrid style, and even native components with Blazor. Um, that project is basically sort of paving the way for the things we're thinking about doing with Blazor in the native app space. Pieces of that will start making their way into .NET 6. 
Okay. Well, it's 2021. We're all supposed to start feeling better, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Caleb's feeling better. Well, we should feel better too. So especially with all these things coming, that sounds cool. It'd be fun. All right. Any other questions, Caleb? No, I'm, I think I'm good. I own.net. And that's, that's a positive thing. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Hey folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. All right, so let's move on to picks then. You got one, Caleb? What's your pick? I don't have a pick. No, I'm lying. I always have a pick or two or three. My pick is another time waster. At least that's what rescue time tells me. This is a waste of time, but you, but you got you got to give back to yourself some, right? So, this week my pick is uh, Prodigal Son. It is a TV show on Fox about a, a profiler whose dad is a serial killer, and they just started their second season, and and I love it. I mean, it's dark, and it's you know, of course, most of the TV shows I walk uh, watch are dark, but uh, yeah, it's it's really good. So cool. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned what I bought my son for Christmas, and it was a couple of uh, chess pieces, but they're not actual chess pieces. They're actual puzzles. And you have to figure out how to take the chess piece apart to get this little token thing that's inside of it. And there's like different levels. There's level one, two, three, and four, depending on the piece of the, of the chess set that it, that it does. And so they go and increasing difficulties. And so my pick is the place that actually makes those. And they actually make lots of other different type puzzles. And I'm not talking like jigsaw puzzles. I'm talking about logic puzzles and things that you have to figure out how to, you know, twist and turn and whatever to get these things taken apart. So yeah, it's a company called Hanayama. So I put that in there and they've got all sorts of different things, not just the chess pieces, but I think it's best to find their actual buy them probably from Amazon. Um, hmm. Looks better than what their website does, but you can see all the different, <laughs> the, the different lineup of things that they've got on their website. They're all really cool. If they you like, they need you like, to redo their website in Blazor. <laughs> How do you know? It might be. Maybe. Uh, maybe. All right. All right, Daniel, you have something you want to let our listeners know about that you interested in lately? Oh man. Let's see. Oh, I mean, we've been, my wife and I just finished watching every single British Baking Show episode. <laughs> and it was fantastic. I have to admit, it's it's so like, particularly we watched most of it during 2020. And it was such a nice light break of like, wonderful people just baking stuff and being funny. And it was fantastic. I imagine you like to bake? it's much healthier than the shows I'm watching. <laughs> <laughs> do you like to bake you and your wife? Oh, uh, we do. Yeah. Actually, my wife used to bake a lot. She, she was, you know, uh, amateur professional baker type type of, cool. of, of, doing, of baking, doing cake, cake decorating and like lots of really nice cupcakes kind of dialed back on that. Like I think it was, a, we were both sort of, Starting to, you know, have a, our, our pants weren't fitting quite as well. <laughs> so we that was very common for 2020. A lot <laughs> less exercise. Yeah. Yeah. But we do like baking. And then, I mean, British baking is very different. But some of the things that the that, that they bake do, do look really appealing to me. I was like, I've got to learn how to make one of those like pies. Like a lot of the pies that they break were, were, looked great. Sweet. Very cool. Yeah. Wow. Makes me hungry. So, all right. Well, Daniel, thanks for coming on the show. If people have questions. They want to reach out. How could they get in touch with you? Oh, you can always reach us on on GitHub. You can reach me personally at danroth27 uh, on Twitter. And give Blazor a try today. Blazor.net is, is where you go to get started. And I, I hope you enjoy it. Great. Thanks. And how can they get in touch with you, Caleb? You got um, multiple ways. I am 
I, I have branched out. I'm all over the place. I'm on Twitter at Caleb Wells Codes, or they can go to my website, calebwellscodes.com, or they can find me on YouTube at Caleb Wells Codes. Do you, do you see a pattern there? <laughs> you got lucky there. Yeah. All yeah, of it. Oh, yeah. Uh, yep, yep. Right. And if people want to reach out to the show or want to get in touch with me, we would love to hear your feedback. I am on Twitter at, at dot net superhero. Thanks, guys. Great yeah, show. Thanks again, Daniel. Bye, y'all. I hope that was helpful. Oh, yeah. We'll catch everybody on the next episode of Adventures in .NET. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by CashFly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with CashFly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.